Welcome to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. The Orkneyunga Saga Chapter 79 Ovaindridi the Young At the time the sons of Harald Gilly ruled over Norway, Eystein was the oldest of them, but Ingi was a legitimate son, and he was the most honoured by the Lendermen, because he let them have their way in all things as they liked. At this time, the following Lendermen assisted him in government. Ogmund and Erling, the son of Kirpinga Orm. They advised King Ingi to send word to Earl Rogenwald and give him an honourable invitation, saying truly that he had been a great friend of his father and desired him to become as intimate with the Earl as he could, so that he might be a dearer friend of this than of his brother, whatever might happen between them. The Earl was related to the brothers and a great friend of theirs, and when he received the message he quickly prepared to go, because he felt a desire to go to Norway to see his friends and kinsmen. Earl Harald asked to be permitted to go with him, out of curiosity and to amuse himself. He was then nineteen winters old. When the earls were ready, they started from the west with some merchants, having a noble retinue, and arrived in Norway early in the spring. They found King Inge in Bjorgvin, and he received them very well. Earl Roggenwald saw many of his friends and kinsmen, and spent a great deal of the summer there. Andridi the Young arrived from Mitligard that summer. He had long been in service there, and was able to tell many things from there, and it was thought good entertainment to inquire from him about things in that part of the world. The Earl conversed frequently with him. Once when they were talking, Andridi said, It seems strange to me that you do not think of going out to Jerusalem, and that you should be satisfied with being told of things that are there. It would best suit such men as you are to be there on account of your great accomplishments. And you will be honoured above all others wherever you come among noble men. When Andridi had said this, many spoke in favour of it and exhorted the Earl to become the leader of such an expedition. Erling made a long speech in support of the proposal and he said he would join the party himself if the Earl would consent to be their chief. And as many men of note seemed eager for the journey, he promised to go. And when he and Erling were settling matters between them, many noble men joined the party. These lander men were among them. Andridi the Young, who was to be their guide, John Pettersson, Aslak Erlinson, Guttem Moll, and Kol from Halland. It was resolved that none of them should have a larger ship than with thirty benches, except the Earl, and no one should have an ornamented vessel but he. This was done in order that no one should envy another because he had finer men or a better ship than he. John Fought was to build a ship for the Earl and to have it as finely fitted out as possible. Oroganvold went home in the autumn 
and intended to stay at home for two winters. King Inge gave the earl two longships, small but very beautiful, and specially built for rowing. They were, therefore, of all the ships the swiftest. Urogenwald gave Harald one of them, called Fifa. The other was called Yalp. In these ships the earls went to sea, holding westward. Urogenwald had received large presents from his friends. It was Tuesday evening when the earls put out to sea, and they had a fair wind during the night. On Wednesday there was a great storm, and in the evening they saw land. It was very dark, and they saw signs of a beach before them. It was stony and narrow, enclosed by the crags. All the men were saved, but they lost a large quantity of their stores. Some of the things were thrown up by the sea during the night. As usual, Orogenwald bore himself the bravest of all men there. He was so merry that he played with his fingers and spoke nearly all of his sayings in rhyme. He took a golden ring from his hand and sang this ditty. Thus I hang the hammer beaten, hand ring from my rounded fingers. Thus I put my fingers through it, so the nymph of the crashing waters threw me, joyful into a rock rift, there to play me with my fingers. When they had carried their things up from the sea, they went farther inland to search for habitations, because they thought they knew that they had landed in Jutland. They soon found farms and distributed themselves among them. The people were glad to see the earl, and when he was asked about his voyage, he sang. Both my ships on the beach went crashing, when the surges swept my men off. Sore afflicted by the billows were the friends of Yelp and Fifa. Certainly this misadventure of the danger-seeking rovers will not soon be quite forgotten by those who got such a wetting. The mistress of the house brought a fur cloak to the earl, who, stretching his hands forward to receive it, laughing, sang this ditty. Here I shake a shrunken fur coat, surely it is not ornamental. All our clothes are in the shipfield, and it is too wide to seek them. Lately all the young seahorses left, we dressed in splendid garments, as we drove the steeds of the mastheads to the crags across the surges. Large fires were made, and they warmed themselves. A female servant entered, shivering all over, and her words were unintelligible on account of her shiver. The earl said he understood her. Asa, you seem quite exhausted. Atata, tis the water. Tutu, where shall I sit? By the fire. Tis rather chilly. The earl sent twelve of his men to Einar in Gulbruvik, but he said he would not receive them unless the earl came himself. When Earl Rogenwald heard this, he sang. Einar said he would give food to none of the lads of Rogenwald. He himself alone accepted. Empty words I now am talking, for I know that he, the friendly, never failed to keep his promise. Go we in then where the fires are burning brightly all the evening. The earl stayed a long time in Jutland, and in the autumn he went south to the Orkneys and resided in his dominions. That autumn two Jutlanders came to him. One was named Armut, a poet. The other was Odi the Little, the son of Glum. He made verses well. The earl received them both as his men. The earl had a grand Yule feast, to which he invited guests, and he gave his men presents. He handed a spear inlaid with gold to the poet Armut, shook it at him, and told him to make a song on the spur of the moment. Princely gifts the battle fanner, 
Skaldic honours are not measured by the gifts bestowed on others. The defender of his country and the best of all commanders, with his own hand brings to Armid, this blood candle golden pointed. One day during the Yule, the guests were looking at the tapestry. The Earl said to Odie the Little, Make a song about the workman's handicraft on the tapestry, and have it made by the time I have finished my stanza, and use none of the same words that are in mine. And then the Earl sang, The old one on the hangings standing, has a sheathrod on his shoulder, but, in spite of all his anger, he will not get one step farther. Odie sang, For a stroke himself prepares the warrior in stooping posture, where the tapestry is parted, yet his danger will be the greatest. Time it is for ship's commanders, peace to make ere harm does not happen. During Yuletide, the Earl entertained Bishop William and many of his chiefs. Then he made known his intention to go to Jerusalem and requested to the bishop to go with him, because he was a good Parisian scholar and the Earl wished him to be their interpreter. The bishop agreed to the Earl's request and promised to go. The following chiefs went with Earl Roggenwald. Magnus, son of Havard, Gunny's son. Svein, Horold's son. And the following men of lesser note. Thorgir Scottacol. Audi the Little. Thorberg Sparty. Armored the Scald. Thorko Krokauga. Grimkel of Flettinus. And Bjarni, his son. When the two winters appointed for the preparations were past, a Roggenwald went early in the spring from the Orkneys east to Norway to see how far the Lendermen had progressed with their preparations. And when he came to Bjorkvin, he found there Erling, John his brother-in-law, and Aslak, but Guttorm arrived shortly after. To Bjorkvin came also the ship which John Fought had caused to be built for the Earl. It was a most exquisite piece of workmanship, and all ornamented. The whole of the carved work on the prow, the veins and many other parts of the ship were gilt. Altogether this was a most splendid ship. Andridi came frequently to the town during the summer and said he would be ready in a week. The Earl's men murmured greatly having to wait so long, and some proposed not to wait for him, saying that such voyages as this had to be made without Andridi. A short time after Andridi came to the town and said he was ready, then the Earl commanded his men to set sail when they thought there was a favourable wind, and when the day came when they had thought they might expect a favourable wind, they all left the town and set sail. The breeze was faint, and the Earl's ship moved slowly, because it required a strong wind. The other chiefs lowered their sails and would not leave the Earl. When they were outside the islands, the breeze increased to such a degree that in the smaller vessels they had to take in the sail, but the Earl's ship now went at a greater speed. They saw two large ships coming after them, and soon they passed them. One of these two ships was highly finished. It was a dragon. Both its head and stem were richly gilded. It was white on the bows and painted everywhere above the sea, where it was thought it would look well. The Earl's men said that it was very likely Andridi's, adding, He has not kept well the agreement that no one should have an ornamented ship except you, sire. The Earl replied, Andridi's pride is great. You may be excused for not liking to be on the same level with us, as we are so much his inferiors, but it is difficult to see whether his good fortune runs before him or goes along with him. But let us not direct our movements according to his hot-headedness. Andridi soon passed them in the larger vessel, but the Earl kept all his ships together 
and had a successful voyage. They all arrived safe in the Orkneys in the autumn. Chapter 80 Of Earl Roganbold and the Orkneymen It was resolved that they should spend the winter there. Some lived at their own expense, others were quartered with the Bondi, and many were with the Earl. There was a great turmoil in the islands. The Orkneymen and the Eastmen quarrelled frequently about bargains and women and other things. The Earl had a very difficult task to keep peace among them, for both parties considered that he deserved well of them and they of him. Of Andridi, it is to be told that when they came to Yachtland, his fine ship was totally wrecked, and he lost a great quantity of goods, but the smaller ship was saved. He spent the winter in Yachtland and sent his men to Norway to have another ship built for the voyage to the east. One of Andridi's crew was called Arne Spitulig, or Stickleg. He went to the Orkneys during the winter with nine men. Arne was a very violent man, daring and turbulent. He and his comrades lived at their own expense during the winter. He brought malt and meat of a tenant of Svein, Asleif's son, and when he demanded payment, Arne delayed it to pay. When he demanded it a second time, he was overwhelmed with abuse, and before they parted, Arne struck him with the back of his axe, saying, Go and tell your champion Svein, whom you are always praising, to obtain redress for you, and you will need no more. The man went and told Svein, requesting him to obtain redress. He gave him a cold answer and said he would promise nothing. One day in the spring, Svein went to collect his rents. They were four together in a ten-oared boat. They had to pass the island in which Arnie was staying, and Svein said he would land there. It was the ebbing tide. Svein went on shore, carrying an axe with a short handle and no other weapon. He told his men to keep the boat from getting aground. Annie Spitteleg and his comrades were lying in an outhouse not far from the sea. Svein walked up and found them indoors. They greeted him. He acknowledged their greeting and spoke to Arnie, saying that he should settle the farmer's account. Arnie replied that there was plenty of time for that. Svein asked him to do it for his intercession, but Arnie still refused. Then Svein said he would not ask any further, and at the same time he drove the axe into Arnie's skull so that the iron was buried in it, and he lost hold of the handle. Svein ran out, and Arnie's companions after him. As they ran fast along the muddy shore, one of them, who was the swiftest, came to close quarters with him. There were large roots of seaweed lying in the mud. Svein seized one of them, and thrust it into the face of the man who had come up with him, and he grasped at his eyes to clear the mud away, but Svein escaped to his boat, and went home to Garrixi. Shortly after, he went on his own business over to Caithness and sent word to Earl Roganvold to settle the matter about Arne Spitalik's slaying. And when the Earl received the message, he summoned together those who were entitled to compensation for Arne and settled the matter to their satisfaction, he himself paying the compensation money. Many other acts of violence perpetrated by the Eastmen and the Orkneymen during the winter, the Earl made good out of his own funds. Early in the spring, he called a thing meeting in Rossi, to which came all the chiefs residing in his dominions. He then made it known to them that he intended to leave the Orkneys and go to Jerusalem, saying that he would leave the government in the lands of his kinsman Harold, and praying all his friends to obey him and help him faithfully in whatever he required while he was obliged to be away himself. Earl Harold was then nearly twenty, tall and strong, 
but ugly. Yet he was a wise man, and the people thought he would be a good chief. In the summer, Urugenwald prepared to leave the Orkneys, but the summer was far advanced before he was ready, because he had to wait a long time for Indridi until the ship came from Norway. When they were ready, they left the Orkneys in fifteen large ships. The following were the commanders of the ships. Urugenwald, Erling Skaki, Bishop William, Aslak Erland's son, Guttorm Magnus Havardsson, Svein Rold's son, Indridi Ungi, and the others who were with him are not named. From the Orkneys they sailed to Scotland, and then to England, and then they sailed to Northumberland, of the mouth of Herfa, and Armut sang. High the crests were of the billows, as we passed the mouth of Herfa. Masts were bending, and the lowland met the waves in long sand reaches. Blind our eyes were with the salt spray, while the youths at home remaining, from the Thingfield fair on horseback. Then they sailed till they were south of England, and so on to Valland. There is no account of their voyage until they came to a seaport called Verbon. There they learned that the earl who had governed the city, and whose name was Girbjorn, had died, but left a young and beautiful daughter by the name of Ermingerd. She had charge of her patrimony and to the guardianship of her noblest kinsmen. They advised the queen to invite Rogenwald to a splendid banquet, saying that her fame would spread far if she gave a fitting reception to noblemen arrived from such a distance. The queen left it to them, and when this had been resolved upon, men were sent to the earl and to tell him that the queen invited him to a banquet, with as many men as he himself wished to accompany him. The earl received her invitation gratefully, selecting the best of his men to go with him. And when they came to the banquet there was good cheer, and nothing was spared by which the earl might consider himself specially honoured. One day, while the earl sat at the feast, the queen entered the hall, attended by many ladies. She had in her hand a golden cup, and was arrayed in the finest robes. She wore her hair loose, according to the custom of maidens, and a golden diadem round her forehead. She poured out for the earl, and the maidens played for them. The earl took her hand along with the cup, and placed her beside him. They conversed during the day, and the earl sang. Lady fair, thy form surpasses all the loveliness of the maidens. They were arrayed in costly garments and adorned with precious jewels. Silken curls and radiant splendour fall upon the beauteous shoulders of the goddess of the gold rings. The greedy eagle's claws I reddened. The earl stayed there for a long time and was well entertained. The inhabitants of the city solicited him to take up his residence there, saying that they were in favour of giving him the queen to him in marriage. The earl said he wished to complete his intended journey, that he would come here on his return, and then they might do what they thought fit. Then the earl left with his retinue and sailed around Thrasnes. They had a fair wind, and sat and drank, and made themselves merry, and the earl sang this song. Long in the prince's memory, Ermingerda's soft words shall linger. It is her desire that we shall ride the waters out to Jordan. But the riders of seahorses, from the southern climes returning, soon shall plough their way to Verbon, or the whale-pond in the autumn. And then Ormut sang, Ne'er shall I see Ermingerda more, from this time, if it not be that my fate shall be propitious. Many now are grieving for her. Happy were I if I could but be beside her just for one day. That indeed would be a good fortune once again to see her fair face. Then Odi sang. Truth to tell, 
We too are scarcely worthy or fair Ermingerda, for this wise and lovely princess may be called the Queen of Maidens. This the title that beseemeth best the splendour of her beauty. While she lives beneath the sunray, may her lot be ever happy. They went on until they came to the west of Gilicia land, five nights before Yuletide, and intended to spend it there. They asked the inhabitants whether they were willing to sell them provisions, but food is scarce in that country, and they thought it a great hardship to have to feed such a numerous host. It so happened that the country was under the rule of a foreigner, who resided in the castle, and oppressed the inhabitants greatly. He made war on them if they did not do everything he wished, and menaced them with violence and oppression. When the earl asked the inhabitants to sell him victuals, they consented to do so until Lent, but made certain proposals on their part. To wit, that Earl Roggenwald should attack their enemies, and should have all the money which he might obtain from them. The earl communicated this to his men, and asked them what they would be inclined to do. Most of them were willing to attack the castle, thinking that it was a very likely place to obtain booty. Therefore, Roggenwald and his men agreed to the terms of the inhabitants. When the Yuletide was close at hand, the earl called his men together and said, We have been resting for a while, and we have not disturbed the men of the castle, and the inhabitants are getting tired of supplying us. I suppose they will think our promise will come to nothing, and it's not manly in us to not do what we promised. Now I wish to hear your advice as to how we are to take the castle, as I know you are here men of great distinction. Therefore, I ask everyone here present to state what plan he thinks most likely to succeed. Erling replied to the earl and said, I will not be silent since you command us to speak, although I am not a man of sage counsels, and those ought rather to be asked who have seen more and are more experienced in such undertakings as Andridi Uni. But I suppose we must do here as is the saying, shoot at the birds before we catch it. I may try to give some advice, whatever may be its value. If you and the other ship commanders do not think it's a bad plan, we shall go today, all of us, to the wood, and carry three bundles of faggots each to the castle, because it appears to me that the lime would not stand well if much heat were applied to it. Let us do this for the next three days, and see what happens. They did as Erling advised, and when they had finished their work, Yule was close at hand. The bishop would not permit the inhabitants of the castle to be attacked during the Yule tide. The chief inhabiting the castle was named Goodfrey. He was a wise man and somewhat advanced in years. He was a good scholar and had travelled much, and knew many languages. He was a covetous man and overbearing. When he saw what the strangers were doing, he called his men together and said, The plan adopted by the Northmen seems to me a wise one, and likely to do us great harm. We shall see. When the fire is applied to the stone wall around the castle, it is not strong. Moreover, the Northmen are valiant and men of great strength, and we may expect a fierce attack from them if they get an opportunity. Now, I wish to hear your advice about the difficult position in which we are placed. But all his men asked him to do what he thought best, and he said, My first plan is to tie ropes together, and you shall let me down over the castle wall. I will dress myself in rags and go to the camp of the Northmen and see what I can ascertain. They did as he told them, and he came to Orogenwald, pretending to be a beggar and speaking Valska, as they understood a little of it. He walked throughout the camp and begged for food. He perceived that there was much jealousy among the Northmen, and that they were divided into two factions. Andridi Ungi was the leader of one, and the Earl of the other. Gudri went to Andridi and spoke to him. He said that the chief of the castle had sent him there, wishing to form an alliance with him. 
He expects that you will give him a quarter of the castle if it's taken, and he is more than willing to let you have his treasure if you will do this in return than those who wish to have him a dead man. Such things they spoke, and many others, but it was concealed from the Earl as at first they observed profound secrecy. When Goodfrey had been some time with the Earl's men, he returned to the castle. But they did not remove their property from it, because they did not know whether the attack would be successful, and they could not put their faith in the inhabitants. Chapter 81 Erogenwald Takes a Castle The tenth day of Yuletide was a fine day, and Erogenwald arose and commanded his men to arm themselves, and summoned them with trumpets to the attack of their castle. They dragged the wood close to it, and heaped up large piles around the walls. Then the earl gave the orders where each should make the attack. He himself, with the Orkney men, had the attack from the south, Erling and Aslak from the west, Jan and Guturm from the east, and Eindridi Unge from the north. When they were ready for the attack, they set fire to the wood, and the earl sang. Maids in lace and snow-white linen, bring us here the white wine sparkling. Fair to see was Erwin Gerda. When we met her in our travels, fare we now to try the castle with our flaming oaken firebrands. Quickly leaping from the scabbard, gleams the sharp-edged smiter. Forward. Now they began to attack the castle vigorously, both with weapons and with fire. They shot missiles into it, for that was the only way of attack. The besieged did not stand firm on the walls, because they had to guard themselves against the missiles. They poured down burning pitch and brimstone, which, however, did very little harm to the Earl's men. What Erling had foretold came to pass. The lime could not stand the fire, and the wall fell down, leaving large breaches open. A man named Sigmund Ongel, or Fishhook, the Earl's stepson, was the keenest in the attack, and frequently went in front of the Earl, although he was then a hardly full-grown man. When the attack had lasted for a while, all the besieged were driven from the wall. The wind blew from the south and drove all the smoke towards Indridi, and when the fire began to spread rapidly, the earl had water poured in it to cool the burnt stones, and then there was a short pause in the attack. But the earl sang a song. Now I mind me of the Yuletide, which I spent with friends and brave men, on the east of Agdir's mountains, with the valiant warrior Solmund. Now again another Yuletide, am I in the same way busy at the south side of the castle, adding to the din of weapons. Further he sang. Glad I was when that fair lady listened to my love tales telling. Hopelessly was I led captive by a valiant maid in autumn. Still I love the noble lady, and I spread the feast for eagles. Stone and lime will bound together, now before me fall asunder. Then Sigmund Ongul sang. When in springtime o'er the waters, you go homewards to the Orkneys, tell the lady whom I most love, lady of the splendid garments, that beneath the castle ramparts there was none who stepped more boldly among the young men than her lover. Then the Earl and Sigmund prepared to force their way into the castle, and meeting with little resistance they entered it, and many were killed, but those that surrendered to the Earl received quarter. They obtained a great deal of property but did not find the chief, and almost no treasure. There was a great discussion about the escape of Goodfrey, and how he had effected it, and soon they suspected Andrew de Uni that he had given him the means of escaping, 
and that he had followed the smoke and thus gained the forest. After this, Aurogenwald and his men stayed a short time in Galicia land and directed their course along the west of Spain. They plundered far and wide in the heathen Spainland and obtained great booty. They went into a certain village, but the villagers ran together and offered fight. They made a stout resistance, but fled at last when many of them had been killed. The earl sang. When in Spainland I went fighting, quickly we o'erthrew the foemen. For when tired of our hard hewing, whom they ran to see their sweethearts, all the land was strewed with corpses, our deeds and songs shall now be famous, and my hope to be worthy of the lovely Ermingerda. Then they sailed along the west of Spain and were overtaken by a gale. There they lay at anchor for three days, and great waves broke over them, so that the vessels nearly foundered. And the earl sang, Here I'm storm-tossed but undaunted, while the cables hold together, and the tackle of the vessel breaks not, as she breasts the billows. I am promised to the fair one, whom we left out in the Northland. Now again there comes a fair wind. Speed we on into the channel. Then they set sail, and ran into Njorfasund with a fair wind, and Odi sang. When the faithful friend of heroes, in the guest hall sweet made quaffing, sat beside the fair ring-giver, that was a week to be remembered. Now the splendid steeds of billows bear the noble-minded Rogenwald, and his warriors, wearing bucklers, quickly through the sound of Njorfi. When they were tacking into the sound, the earl sang, by an east wind breathing softly, as from the lips of valiant lady, other ships now wafted onward, as we pushed the yards out further, though we had to tie the canvas tighter than we had expected to the middle of the sail-yard. South of to Spain, we bear away now. They sailed through Njorfasund, and then the gale began to abate, and when they had cleared the sound, Andridi Ungi parted from the earl with six ships, and sailed across the sea to Marseille. But Aurogenwald and his men remained at the sound. It was said that Indridi now himself proved that he had allowed Goodfrey to escape. The Earl's men sailed out to sea and stood southwards to Circland. Then Aurogenwald sang. Now our good ship, land forsaking, laves her breast in limpid waters, long ere he who sings these verses sees again the northern islands. With the sharp prow I the yielding, earth's surrounding sea am carving. Far off Spainland sweeping southward. More is not said of the Earl's progress till they came south of Circland and lay near Sardinia, not knowing where the land was. It was very calm, and a thick fog spread over the water, so that they could hardly see anything from the ships, and therefore they sailed slowly. One morning the mist disappeared, and the crew arose and looked around the two islets. When they looked for them a second time, there was but one islet. This they told to the Earl. Then he said, This cannot have been islets which you have seen. It must be ships such as they have in this part of the world, and which they call Dromandar. From a distance they look as big as homes. But where the other Dromand lay, a puff of wind has probably swept over the water, and she has sailed away. But they are likely some rovers. Then he summoned the bishop and all the ship commanders, and said, I ask of you, Lord Bishop, and Erling, my kinsman whether you can see any chance or device by which we may overcome those in the Dromond. The bishop replied, I think you will find it difficult to attack the Dromond in your longships, 
or you will hardly be able to reach their bullocks without a boarding pike, and they probably have brimstone and boiling pitch to pour under your feet and over your heads. You may see, Rogenwald, wise as you are, that it would be the greatest rashness to place yourself and your men in such jeopardy. Then Erling said, My Lord Bishop, it may be that you are right in thinking that we shall not obtain the victory by rowing at them. Yet I cannot help thinking that if we were to try to push close to the Dromond, their missiles will fall beyond our ships lying close alongside. But if this is not the case, we can push away very quickly, for they will not be able to chase us in the Dromond. The Earl said, That is bravely spoken, and very much to my own mind. I will now make it known to the ship's commanders and all men, that everyone may arm and prepare himself, each in his own place as well as he can. Then let us attack them, and if they are Christian merchants, we can make peace with them. But if they are heathens, which I think they are, by the favour of Almighty God we shall be able to overcome them. But out of booty we obtain, we shall give every fiftieth penny to the poor. Then they unfastened their arms, prepared the bullocks of their ships for battle, and made themselves ready in other ways as their circumstances permitted. The earl assigned to each vessel its place in the attack. Then they pulled vigorously onwards. Chapter 82 Rogenwald Conquers the Dromond When the men in the Dromond saw the ships pulling towards them to attack them, they spread fine clothing and costly stuffs out on the bulwarks and made a great shouting, which the earl's men took as a challenge. Rogenwald brought his ship close under the stem of the Dromond, on the starboard side. Erling did the same on the larboard side. John and Aslick brought theirs under the bows, while other amidship on either side, all sticking as close to her as possible. But when they came close under the Dromond, she was so high in the side that the Northmen were unable to use their weapons, and the others poured blazing brimstone and burning pitch over them, but most of it fell outside the ships, as Erling had foreseen, and they had no need to shield themselves from it. However, when the attack did not succeed, the bishop moved away his ship and two others, and they told off their bowmen to go into them. After having got to a convenient distance for shooting, they shot their arrows into the Dromond, and this was the most effective mode of attack. The men in the Dromonds protected themselves with their shields, and paid little heed to what those were doing who were in the ships close under the Dromond. Rogenwald then ordered his men to take their axes and cut the planks of the Dromond, where the iron fastenings were fused, and when the men in the ships saw what the earl's men were doing, they did the same. Now, where Erling had stationed himself, there was a large anchor hanging from the Dromond, which had its fluke hooked over the gunwale, but the shank hung down towards Erling's ship. One of the forecastle men was named Andon Raudi. He was lifted up to the anchor stock, and then he pulled up others. Standing there as close as they could, they hacked away at the planks with all their might, and this was far higher than the reach of the others. When they had made an opening large enough to admit them, they prepared to board the Dromond. The Earl and his men entered on the lower deck, and Erling and his men on the upper, and when they both got in, they began with severe fighting. Those in the Dromond were Saracens, who withstood them most fiercely. Erling received a severe wound in the neck, near the shoulder, when he jumped on board. It healed so badly that he carried his head over to the side ever after, and therefore he was called Krikneck, or Skaki. When Rogenwald and Erling joined each other, the Saracens were driven to the forepart of the ship, and the Earl's men boarded one after the other until they were more numerous, 
and then they pressed the enemy hard. In the Drummond, they saw one man far superior to the others in appearance and stature, and they were persuaded that he must be their chief. Eurogenwald ordered his men not to wind him, if they could seize him in any other way. Then they surrounded him and pressed him with their shields, and thus caught him. He and a few others with him were sent to the bishop's ship, while the rest were killed, and obtained great booty and many precious things. When they had finished the hardest part of their work, they sat down and rested, and the earl sang. At the spreading of the banner, Erling, mighty tree of battle, went to victory and honour, foremost when we fought the Dromond. Then we failed the fighters, everywhere the blood ran streaming, and the keen-edged swords were reddened as we hewed among the heathen. We have had our fill of slaughter, round us lie the heaps of corpses. Gory swords have been red painting at the Drummond all this morning. Soon the news will spread to northward of this furious sword tempest. It will soon be known at Verbon how we dealt death blows this morning. There was much talk about what had been done. Everyone told what he had seen. Then they talked of who had been the first to board, but were not all of one opinion. Some said it would not be creditable to them if they did not all relate this great exploit in the same way. At last they all agreed to let Eurogenwald decide, and everyone should afterwards tell the story in the same way as he did. Then the earl sang. Odin Raudu was the man first, with energy and valour, scaled the black sides of the Dromund. Soon the brave one seized his booty. By the help of God's good favour, have we overcome the heathen, steeped our swords in all red blood, round us lie the sable corpses. When they had cleared the Dromund, they set it on fire. When the big man whom they had taken as their prisoner had seen this, he changed colour and became pale, and he could not keep himself still. But though they tried to make him speak, he did not say a word, neither did he make any kind of sign. He was immovable to fair promises and menaces alike. But when the Dromund began to blaze up, they saw a glowing stream as if it were run into the sea. At this, the captive man was greatly moved. They concluded, that they had not made a careful search for the money, and now the metal, whether gold or silver, had melted in the fire. Then Eurogenwald and his men sailed south under Cirkland, and lay off a certain town of Cirkland, and had seven nights' truce with the men of the town, and sold them silver and other valuables. No one would buy the big man, and then the earl gave him leave to go away with four men. He came back on the morning after, with his men, and told them he was a nobleman of Cirkland that he had been ransomed from there with the Dromund and all its contents. It grieved me the most, he said, that you should burn it and thus destroy so much treasure without anyone's having the benefit of it. Now you are in my power, but it counts for your benefit with me that you spared my life and did me such an honour as you could. But I would gladly never see you again, and now may you live hale and well. Then he rode away into the country. Eurogenwald sailed to Crete and anchored in a strong gale. When Armand kept watch during the night, he sang. Lie we now where stormy billows break the sturdy bulwarks. My lot is to keep the watch well on this wave-surmounting seahorse. While the lads are snugly sleeping, I, to Crete, look o'er my shoulder. They lay off Crete until they had a fair wind to Jerusalem and arrived early on a Friday morning at Acre. They went on shore with great pomp and splendour such as was seldom seen there. Thorbjorn Sparty sang. 
off to vie with comrades hardy, being in battle in the Orkneys, when the feeder of the people led his forces to the combat. Now our trusty earl we follow, as we carry up our butlers, gaily to the gates of Acre, on this joyful Friday morning. They stayed in Acre for a while, and a disease broke out among their men, of which many died. Thorbjorn Svarty died there, and Odi Litli sang, bravely bore the baron's vessels, Thorbjorn Svarty, scald and comrade, as he trod the sea king's highway, round Thrasnes south to Acre. There I saw them heap the grave mould of a high church o'er the king's friend. Earth and stones now lies he under, in that southern land of sunshine. Rogenwald and his men left Acre and visited all of the holiest places of Jerusalem. They all went on to Jordan and bathed. Rogenwald and Sigmund Ongel swam across the river and went to some shrubs and tied large knots, and the earl sang. Long the way as I have travelled, to this heath enclosed by deserts, and the wise maid will remember, too, my crossing over Jordan. Seems to me that those who tarry at their homesteads will not find it a short journey here to travel. Warm bloods fall on the wide plain. Then Sigmund sang. This day I have tied a strong knot for the churlish clown that's sitting. By the home hearth, tis no falsehood that we play him now a fine trick. Then the earl sang. On this feast day of St. Lawrence, tie we knots for this fine fellow. Tired I came to this nice corner, where the shrubs grow close together. And when they were going from Jerusalem, a Rogenwald sang. From the skull's neck hangs the cross now, in his hand a palm he carries. Now should unkindly feelings, from the heights my men rush downwards. During the summer, a Rogenwald and his men left Jerusalem, and were going to Miklagard. In the autumn they came to a town called Imbolum, and stayed there a long time. When two persons met where the street was crowded, and one of them thought it was necessary to go to one side, he cried out to the other, Midway, midway. One evening, the earl's men, among whom was Erling Skaki, walked from town, and on the bridge leading to the ship, some inhabitants of the town met them and cried out, Midway, midway. Erling was very drunk, and pretended not to hear it. And when they met, he jumped from the bridge into the mud. His men ran to his assistance and dragged him out and had to undress him completely. Next morning, when the earl saw him, and was told what had happened, he smiled and sang. Bad the luck my friend has met with, in the mud he tumbled splashing, as he would not cry out midway, loudly like the foreign people. I suppose the prince's brother, when upset, looked rather rueful. Black the mud that on the ground is imbel, as early knoweth. Sometime after, it happened that they came from the town very drunk, and John Fott was missed by his men, and no one else was missing. They sent immediately to the other ships to search for him. He was not found. They could not search for him on the shore during the night, but in the morning when it was daylight, they found him murdered under the wall of the town, but it was never known who had slain him. They buried him honourably at a holy church, and then went away, and came north to Agusness. And there they waited for some nights for a fair wind to sail to Miklagard. They made their ships look splendidly and sailed with great pomp, as they knew Sigurd Jorsafari had done. When they were crossing the sea northward, the earl sang this song. Let us ride the sea king's horses, leave the plough in field untouched, as we drive the wet prows onward, all the way 
to Mitlegard. There we'll take the royal bounty, paid for wielding well our weapons. While we fill the wolf's red palette, and on the battlefields win honour.